story of the female spirits. 12th November in the year of our Lord, 1812. My dearest Isabella, it has been hardly more than a week since we parted and yet I miss you dearly already. I'm afraid your dear sister Christie's company is no compensation and though I love both my own sisters, Fanny does not have your liveliness, though I have enjoyed telling Clare some of your Scottish ghost stories. I have not yet seen anyone else, as I have been in my room, recovering from yet another awful journey, comprising nothing but wall-to-wall seasickness day and night. That is a pity, actually, as apparently we had some interesting guests to dinner last night. Christie tells me that my father's young poet friend Percy Shelley came to dinner with his wife, She and Fanny seem quite taken with the wife, whom Fanny called a fine lady, and Christy says she has a beautiful pink and white complexion and a smart purple satin dress. The husband, she says, was carelessly dressed, with a mop of curly, unruly hair and startling blue eyes. He is working on a poem about Queen Mab, which sounds rather intriguing, I'm sure you'll agree. I am not really writing to you about them, though, as interesting as they undoubtedly are. I felt compelled to write straight away because I had the strangest dream last night and I simply have to tell you about it, as I would if we were still together. In the dream, I saw the strangest collection of famous women from the past, all together in a heavenly chamber. They were with the angel Ithuriel, the angel of truth, but the pagan Hermes was present also, so perhaps it was merely a wild, mixed-up imagining of mine. I saw Aspasia, the mistress of Pericles. She cared not a whit that she was not his wife. She stood proud as a philosopher and a teacher and the mother of his son. I saw Sappho, the poet who wrote of the stirrings of love so beautifully. Beneath my skin a fire rages and my eyes are empty but my ears are full. She wrote about young women. I feel like this more in the presence of young men with perhaps some occasional exceptions. I saw Boadicea, too, leading her army of British rebels against the might and tyranny of the Roman Empire, proclaiming her message of liberté, égalité, fraternité. And I saw the Lady Jane Grey. Do you remember how you dressed up as her for our party a few months ago? The nine days queen was studious, bent over her books, her rough, smallish, befitting her Protestant restraint and decoration. All appeared as they must have done in their prime, Young Lady Jane, a fresh teenager, her head placed exactly where it should be on her neck, Baudicier, all flaming red hair, and a tartan cloak that looks just like the one I brought with me from Scotland to remind me of you. Aspasia and Sappho, models of Greek simplicity in their white dresses so like to our own. And I saw another woman there. I saw my mother. She appeared as she does in her portrait, happy and beautiful and flushed, but her belly rounded with her doom, me. The women were discussing the status of women on earth, the progress made towards our emancipation and how far we have still to go. They were each asked to offer gifts to two young women who were soon to be married. Like fairy godmothers in a folktale, they dispatched these gifts to these specially favoured women. Most of it faded in and out of hearing as I flew around the scene the way one sometimes does in dreams, but I can almost remember some of what they said. Perhaps you would like to read it? The 
women came forth one by one from their assigned planets to speak to the assembled crowd of angels and spirits. Lady Jane Grey resided on the sun because she was the presiding spirit. Bodicea was assigned to Mars as befits a warrior. Aspasia was given Mercury. Sappho, of course, resided on Venus. And my mother was given to Jupiter, the king of the gods and the planets. Aspasia spoke first. She talked of love, of the beauty of love, and of how love can raise us higher than we dreamed. Oh, ye mistaken men, said she. Can you not see that your only happiness in the lower world lies in the union of love? She talked of how she tutored Socrates and of the dominion of the ancient Spartan women over men, a dominion acquired by their intellect alone and which ensured to them so much respect from their husbands and the legislature that by the one they were consulted on political affairs and by the other permitted to share with the magistrates in the education of their children. To these favoured women, said she, referring to the fortunate young ladies who were to be given their gifts, I give those speechless graces of form and air which elude description, but which are the real soul of beauty. I give them too that happy witchery of manner which forms a spell like enchantment, because it is compounded of intelligence, animation and accomplishments. Bodicea spoke next. You all know my love of liberty, she said which daily increased till my mind gained the full vigour of maturity. The oppression of my enemies roused me to revenge. Such was my detestation of slavery that I determined to resign my existence rather than submit to the disgrace of it. As women, we have learned by actual experience how different freedom is from slavery. And so I will inspire these favoured women with an enthusiastic desire for the liberty and happiness of their fellow creatures, with greatness of character to endure with equanimity the numberless misfortunes attendant on a mortal state, and with every virtue which can render domestic life a scene of exquisite delight. Sappho stood up next, weeping, overcome with emotion. She sat down again, flashing her eyes over the assembly with a momentary blaze which annihilated for an instant the splendour of the sun. She tore her hand in impassioned action from the cords of her lyre and stood again. My apologies all, she said. A gentleman of whom I had high hopes has proved himself not worthy of my attention. He has given in to prejudice like a crocodile who would devour our unhappy sex. But no matter. Let me turn my attention to these favoured women. Oh, be they blessed with all the energies of virtue, all the softness of sensibility. Their hearts a world of love, their persons a shrine of beauty, and their minds a treasure of knowledge. Be they eloquent as Aspasia, learned as Lady Jane Grey, noble as Bodicea, philosophic as Wollstonecraft, and tender as Sappho. And then I saw my mother stand up and speak. Her voice was clear and eloquent, proud and confident, but so sweet to my ears. The genuine philanthropy which animated my bosom when in a mortal state I now feel glowing with the increased ardour of a disembodied spirit, she said. With a bleeding heart I beheld the degradation of one half of the human race, subjugated by the undue influence of prejudice or the mistaken views of male prerogative by the other. I laboured with all the energies of my soul to convince them both of their true interests, but slow is the progress of truth. Like the rising sun, at first its influence is but dimly felt. 
And so I am convinced of the necessity of an early and judicious education for both men and women, that the one may have an equal respect and admiration for the other. May these highly favoured females possess an exquisite sensibility of heart, governed by the enlarged conceptions of a cultivated mind. Finally, Lady Jane Grey as the presiding spirit stood, and my dear, she looked so like you in your costume. She opened by quoting Cowper. The clear harangue, and cold as it is clear, falls sporific on the listless ear. Like quicksilver, the rhetoric they display shines as it runs, but grasped at, slips away. Then she observed that such is the infernal influence of these demons of ignorance and prejudice, that they have so contrived to oppress the hearts and confuse the heads of those who intended to have exerted their talents in the defence of a long-injured sex, that I cease to wonder that women have so few champions. Men labour under a false fear, perhaps, that the complete emancipation of woman's mind might tend to make this too-much-loved earth more lovely. And yet hope springs eternal. Perhaps one day the day will come when men and women will live in harmony and enjoy equality of opportunity in the world below. And so these selected women I enrich with the possession of beauty, learning, sweetness and philanthropy. She sat, and I found myself wondering who these young women were who were to be so favoured. Young women soon to be married. Oh my dear, do you think we might count ourselves, or Claire, or Fanny, or Christie among that number? Perhaps we are to receive these gifts. Shall we, bewitch men, desire liberty, love knowledge, cultivate our minds and embrace both beauty and philanthropy? Is my mother watching over us from somewhere beyond this realm, offering us the strength to make our way through this world of men? Dare I to hope that there is anything beyond this earthly life, that we can have any connection to those we have loved and lost, or even killed? The dream took a strange turn after that. The heavens turned dark and thunder roared. Lightning sprang forth from the clouds and stabbed itself down into the earth. A male figure appeared, surrounded by a purple cloud. I could not see him clearly and his appearance kept shifting and changing. Now he was young with a mop of unruly dark curls, now older and bent with care. Now a sneering man with a pointed nose, now wearing a turban, now naked as the day he was born. I saw a maiden approach him. She was clothed in the attractive garb of beauty and dazzled the young man. He seemed now young, disorderly and passionate, though I still could not make out his face which kept on shifting. She dazzled him with the splendour of her accomplishments, which gave off a meteor-like radiance. She danced, she sang, and... Rolling her eye about in tender languishments, she seemed to solicit the young man to approach. He rapidly obeyed, and as he took her hand, the timid blushes of delicate refinement suffused her face and trembling bosom, and she dropped fainting into his arms while he exclaimed, For thee I panted, thee I prized, for thee I gladly sacrificed whate'er I loved before. But there was something not quite right about the maiden girl. She did not blink. Her eyes were unclosing and she had an air of the macabre about her, which I could not quite put my finger on or understand, for there seemed to be nothing amiss. But my instinct proved accurate 
when I beheld her suddenly dart her fair fingers into the bosom of the young man, which, immediately turning into horrid fangs, tore and rent his heart in sunder. From her ever-open eyes darted vengeance. Her timid smile, with which she had bewitched the young man, became the hellish laugh of scorn. I shuddered. Her unhappy victim abruptly springing from her grasp, he loudly cried, The unexpanded heart will ever be tyrannical. And with that I saw no further, for the curtain of fate fell over the scene. All went black and I awoke, sweating and shivering in my bed. What this strange, monstrous turn may mean, I do not know. Perhaps it was merely an echo of all those monstrous creatures we have told each other tales about. Selkies and Lamiae and Koinegs. I am almost inspired to use it in a story, but perhaps I will refrain, for I am not sure that creating such a creature will be beneficial to our cause. We need to persuade the men we encounter of our intelligence and rationality, and show off our skills and accomplishments. I cannot help but feel that writing a monster who appears in the guise of a beautiful young maid and then rips out a man's heart can only set our cause back, not pull us forward. Besides, I am convinced that in most stories of the monstrous and the macabre, it is the men who create such evil through their actions or neglect that are the real monsters. My father's wife is calling me, and I must go or face her wrath. Pray write to me as soon as you can, and find me a new ghost story to chill the bones while I read myself to sleep at night. Yours ever, Mary. Welcome back to Creepy Classics. I'm Juliet Harrison, and this is my podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval, and early modern ghost stories. So this episode of the podcast is based on an unpublished manuscript found among the papers of the novelist Jane Porter, a novelist I confess I had not heard of before. Uh, she's a 19th century novelist, as was her sister, Anna Maria Porter, if I've remembered that correct. So uh, it's written by Jane Porter and an unknown co-author. So Jane Porter has made emendations to the manuscript and then we don't recognise the handwriting uh, on the manuscript. So we don't know who the author was. I should say straight away, it was not written by Mary Shelley, even though my version is, uh, is told in the form of a letter from Mary Shelley. This is not a Mary Shelley story because Mary Shelley was one year old when this story was written. So that's a change I've made for my own reasons. Uh, we basically, we don't know the author of this story. Uh, we do know Jane Porter worked on it. It's a story called Ithuriel, the Angel of Truth, Thus Restateth an Event of the Heavens. Uh, it's unpublished, uh, other than it's been published in uh, an article in an academic journal, uh, published by Devaney Lusa, um, and I will provide all the details for that article at the end of this episode uh, anybody with access to JSTOR with access to this particular journal and JSTOR um, can go read it. So I am really far out of my comfort zone on this one. Um, so as you know if you are a regular listener uh, I specialise in ancient Roman history and I dip into other bits and pieces as and when uh, but my core period that is the period I specialize in is is ancient Rome the ancient Roman world um, this is not only early modern which is my weakest 
point of all the periods I cover on this podcast, it's actually pushing the definition of early modern to its absolute extreme. The story was written in 1798. I have set it in 1812. Um, Early modern history gets cut off at different places by different historians. This is something that happens with periodization, that different historians have different opinions on exactly where we should stop one period and start the next one. Obviously, nobody living at the time really knows, unless it's based on a reign, Uh, And even then, we use the word regency to refer to a broader period than the literal years that George IV was regent for his father, George III of England. But anyway, um, historians tend to cut off early modern history and start talking about modern history, uh, either around 1800, which would put this story absolutely at the very end, and my setting of it, in fact, would be modern, or some historians cut it off at 1815 at the Battle of Waterloo defeat of Napoleon. So that works quite well for me for several reasons. Um, One is that I am a little bit better on the Regency period than other early modern periods only because I've read three of Jane Austen's novels, one of them numerous times. So I've got a primary source for women's lives in this period practically memorised. So that helps. But more importantly, uh, 1816 is actually a really good cutoff point for me for this podcast. When I set up the podcast and I decided I was going to cover ancient medieval and early modern, the reason that I cut it off early modern is because I feel like uh, ghost folklore and ghost literature from the 19th and 20th centuries and obviously the modern era, the 21st century, I feel like that's pretty well covered. And people who are interested in ghost folklore and related folklore are generally going to be pretty well informed on 19th, 20th, 21st century folklore, ghost stories and so on. It's the ancient medieval and sometimes early modern ghost stories that aren't so well known, so I thought people might discover stories they weren't familiar with through the podcast. It's also, those are the periods where the stories need rewritten more. Um, Charles Dickens or M.R. James's style of writing isn't quite the same as an author writing now, but it's far more readable than a medieval or early modern manuscript in medieval or early modern English, never mind manuscripts written in Latin or Greek. So that was the the reason that I, I chose that. I wanted to highlight a history of ghost stories going back further than the very well-known kind of ghost folklore and ghost literature Uh, of the 19th century onwards. 1816 is the perfect cut-off year because 1816 is the year that Mary Shelley and Polidori and Lord Byron and Percy Shelley challenged each other to write ghost stories while they were stuck in the Villa Diodati uh, during a storm. And as a result of that meeting, Mary Shelley ended up writing her novel Frankenstein, which basically invented the modern genre of science fiction. And uh, Polidori wrote a story called The Vampire, which basically created the modern vampire. Vampires have existed in folklore, that's where he got the idea, but the modern concept of the literary vampire basically goes back to Polidori. Um, And Mary Shelley is basically the the mother of modern science fiction, pretty much, with Frankenstein. Which is interesting, because the challenge was to write a ghost story, which we tend to think of as something else entirely in a modern context. But anyway, so... 1816 is the perfect cutoff point 
for for this podcast because that is the point where modern ghost literature kind of comes into being ironically through two stories not about ghosts uh, they were supposed to be about ghosts <laughs> mary shelley and polidori just uh, uh, interpreted the brief rather broadly this means that this is kind of as late as i'm likely to go with this podcast now i say that and i'm going to find something victorian i can't resist covering at some point but that's the intention um that this is pretty much the latest sort of thing that we're going to be looking at um i've heavily adapted it so the original essay it's only available if you have access to academic journals for one thing it's also written in a structure that wouldn't come across all that well now so as i say part of the reason that i'm retelling these stories in a modern form is because they are in formats that are not terribly readable for the purposes of entertainment for modern readers now the closer you get to uh, the modern day and with stories written in english obviously uh, the less that's the case and you can certainly sit down if you are able to access it you can sit down and read this story and it'll read perfectly fine but it does have a structure that we would not use for a modern short story and again there's a difference between this and something like the ghost stories of charles dickens or mr james those are clearly recognizable short stories this is not something that you would expect to read in a modern collection of you know short stories about ghosts um, it's a very classical structure. It's a dialogue of the dead, something that we see appearing in Greek and Roman literature. Um, but it's not a common um, setup for modern fiction. Uh, I have directly quoted some sections of it. So there are bits and pieces in there where I have directly, you know, copy pasted a chunk from the story uh, and mixed it in with my own writing. But I have also been pretty liberal in the adaptation. I've made a lot of changes. Um, to create a modern short story um, out of this you know, 1798 manuscript. It also assumes an education in classics. It assumes everybody knows who Aspasia and Sappho and what it calls Bodicea, the woman that we would call Boudicca, it assumes that you know who they are. It assumes a readership who are Protestants, uh, talks about Lady Jane Grey and, and Protestantism and um, so I will talk about Lady Jane Grey for those of you who are unfamiliar with her. I will get to kind of her history. Um, but she's a sort of a Protestant martyr who was executed by a Catholic queen. It's also, although it's a feminist text, it's very obviously a feminist text. I mean, it's literally got the ghost of Mary Wollstonecraft only a year after she died. So it's very much a feminist text. But it's also a snapshot of where feminism was when it was written in 1798. So most of the text actually talks about four men. Charles Andrews, Thomas Rees, John Hughes and John Wilkes. Some of those we can tentatively identify. Some we're really not sure who it's referring to. Um, but it really talks about those men a lot. Um, it also has Mary Wollstonecraft talking about lack of self-control, criticising herself for lack of self-control. This is a reference to her sex life. It is not the way we would view it and it's not the way her daughter mary shelley would have viewed it either um so because i'd chosen to put this in the words of mary shelley that wasn't going to fit anyway and then obviously the biggest change i've made is to make it a letter written by mary shelley so <coughs> mary wollstonecraft godwin shelley um, was one year old when this story was written but i just had to include her um 
The fact that she is the daughter of the founder of feminism, Mary Wollstonecraft, is just fascinating. The connection between those two is really interesting. And she wrote Frankenstein and it's got ghosts and it's got monsters. And I just, I could not resist um, incorporating Mary Shelley into this story. And then on top of all that, when I was doing the research, it turns out the only known portrait of her friend Isabella, who is the intended recipient of my imaginary letter, shows Isabella dressed as Lady Jane Grey. <laughs> so when I read that, I was like, well, that's perfect. Um, basically, Lady Jane Grey was uh, very much revered in this period um, as uh, not only a Protestant martyr, but also a, a young woman who was highly educated. And I chose to write the story as a letter because Frankenstein is written in an epistolary form, that's its framing device, uh, and also as a sort of tribute to Jane Austen. Pride and Prejudice was originally epistolary, and I remember it. Uh, GCSE or A level GCSE I think it was having to count how many letters there are in Pride and Prejudice because it was originally in the form of letters um, and Dracula was as well so it's a very popular writing form at that time um, so of course when I decided it was going to be a dream of Mary Shelley so I could incorporate Mary Shelley into the story um, at that point uh, I realised that it was going to have to be a, a letter um, and I had her write the letter to Isabella, her great friend from Scotland, who had shared a lot of ghost stories with her. By the way, the pattering in the background is the dog. Sorry about that. Um, she's very cute, if only you could all see her. The other thing that the original story doesn't do is lean on what I've always thought of as the absolutely horrible irony that Mary Wollstonecraft, the founder of modern feminism, died in childbirth. Um she died as a result of something that can only happen to people people assigned female at birth which just seems like an awful irony so uh, I want to talk a bit about Mary Wollstonecraft and it was actually Wollstonecraft that brought me to this text I ended up talking and thinking and researching more about Mary Shelley her daughter than her mother Wollstonecraft um but it was Mary Wollstonecraft who I was initially drawn to and this idea of the ghost of Mary Wollstonecraft. So as I mentioned a few times already, she is, and I hope this is not too controversial to say, the founder of modern Western feminism. That does not mean she's the first person who was ever feminist. Uh, but certainly, if you were to do a history of modern feminism in the West, I think you would probably start with her. She had a fascinating life. She went to Paris in the middle of the French Revolution. She had a relationship with a man called Gilbert Imlay. They had a daughter called Fanny. Uh, Imlay then left her. They weren't married. She returned to London. She attempted suicide twice. And then once she had sort of returned to her literary circle and started um, you know, seeing people again, she began a relationship with William Godwin. Then when she got pregnant, they got married so that the child would be legitimate because she had had first-hand experience of the difficulties uh, that she ran into in her society by being an unmarried mother. Now, neither she nor Godwin believed in marriage as an institution, uh, but it was a practical issue that, you know, she had suffered so much from, from being an unmarried mother with her first daughter that it was... Their lives were just going to be easier. <laughs> Certainly hers and her daughters. The The baby with Godwin was the, the woman who would eventually grow up to be Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley. 
Mary Wollstonecraft, the mother, sadly died 11 days after the birth of the baby of sepsis. Uh, so as I mentioned, she, the quick way of saying it is died in childbirth. Um, death in childbirth, or what would medically be called maternal mortality, um, it happens for a whole host of reasons. Uh, I haven't got the figures in front of me. Maternal mortality covers the death of the mother within a certain period of birth, I think about 30 days or something, I'd have to check. Uh, because there's a lot of different things that can cause it. <laughs> so um, I won't go through like all of it right now. One of the best known is eclampsia, which these days tend to spot pre-eclampsia and do a caesarean section, but obviously in the past caesarean sections um, were often fatal to the mother and often to the baby as well. Uh, as any of you who have been watching House of the Dragon are aware, um, in the 19th century, they did start to be survivable, but they were still uh, not quite the straightforward operation that one hopes they would be now. Anyway, there's many, many different ways to, you know, inverted commas, die in childbirth. What happened to Mary Wollstonecraft was one of the most common causes of, of inverted commas, death in childbirth, um, which was, uh, was not what was known as childbed fever. It's basically sepsis. It's a blood infection. Uh, what happened to Wollstonecraft specifically is that a doctor had had to manually remove the placenta after birth. She had delivered the baby, but she hadn't been able to deliver the afterbirth of the placenta. He had had to take it, you know, pull it out of her, which was apparently agonising, I'm not surprised. Uh, and he hadn't washed his hands. Uh, and so she died. And it is, you know, a, a sharp reminder of just how dangerous pregnancy and childbirth actually are. Now, in a modern context, of course, we have modern medicine. So um, we have much higher survival rates, I'm very glad to say. Um, you know, I had an episiotomy when I had my son. If I'd had that operation 200 years ago, I'd probably have died of childbed fever as well. Fortunately, Florence Nightingale happened in between those two things. Um, and now we know we need to wash things. Um, the number of ways I or my son could have died in the process of me having him is, is quite terrifying. Um, didn't have, obviously didn't happen to everybody. Some people have several children and it's fine, but uh, it was a lot more common before modern medicine um, to die uh, giving birth or for small children to die uh, or to lose the baby. Um, so Mary Shelley sadly lost three children in infancy childhood, one from uh, cot death, now known as SIDS, uh, who'd been premature, uh, and the other two um, when they were small children. Before her surviving son Percy was born and she nearly died during a miscarriage herself. Um, so I just find it just this, this most horrible irony um, that somebody who fought for the rights of women was killed by something so very specific to women um, or people assigned female at birth um, and it's the reason that you know gynecological medical research is so important <laughs> we need uh, to take women seriously and we need to look at what happens in pregnancy and childbirth and make sure we are minimizing the risks as much as possible um, Another kind of factor in their lives, both the Marys and Mary Shelley's stepsister Claire and Percy Shelley's first wife Harriet 
all ended up suffering from embracing a sort of a sex positive attitude in a society that didn't. Maybe not Harriet so much because Shelley left her, but she did then get pregnant by somebody else and sadly died by suicide. Um, Claire, Mary Shelley's stepsister, had a child with Lord Byron, who then had no interest in her afterwards. Mary Shelley ran off with Shelley before he'd actually, well, he didn't um, divorce Harriet. Harriet died. And Mary Wollstonecraft had suffered uh, socially from having an illegitimate daughter with a man who then abandoned them. So they all had these wonderful sex-positive attitudes, but they lived in a society that didn't, without adequate health care or contraception. Um, and they all suffered for it. Um, which it just seems so ironic. Anyway. But anyway... Outside of all that, Mary Wollstonecraft was a political philosopher. She wrote several works, including Vindication of the Rights of Men in 1790, and this is primarily about republicanism and voting rights and so on. She had lived through the French Revolution at the time. And Vindication of the Rights of Women in 1792. She argued for republicanism and equal education for men and women. So it's really interesting that her ghost appears in this story, written only less than a year almost after she died, or just over a year after she died. Um, obviously I have chosen to move it a little bit later because I moved the setting to 1812 so that it could be a dream uh, of Mary Shelley, her daughter. Their names are quite interesting as well, actually. Mary Wollstonecraft is always known as Mary Wollstonecraft, which is her maiden name. Um, she was married to William Godwin, so she was Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. Um, she is sometimes known by that full name, but she was never Mary Godwin. Her daughter is sometimes referred to as Mary Godwin, sometimes Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, sometimes Mary Shelley, sometimes Mary Godwin Shelley, um, depending on who's writing about her and what time of her life. She's primarily known as Mary Shelley because she published Frankenstein under that name. Initially, it was published anonymously, but then later under the name of Mary Shelley. Um, so she's known as Mary Shelley more often than not. And saying Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley is a bit complicated um, but you can see those very early feminist ideas in sim and the the fact none of them believed in the institution of marriage they only got married for social reasons um, and you can see that reflected in the the use of surnames the only problem being that of course they have almost exactly the same name and I think that's the other reason Mary Shelley is so often referred to as Mary Shelley um, because it separates her from her mother Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin so aside from Mary Wollstonecraft, um, there are four other historical women who appear in this. My goodness, the amount of research <laughs> for this podcast. Um, I'm going to very briefly touch on a whole bunch of fascinating subjects that could easily be entire episodes in themselves. Um, there's so much <laughs> in this text. Uh, I was intensely relieved that three of them were classical. Um by the time I'd researched, you know, brushed up on the three classical ones, looked into Lady Jane Grey, Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley. Oh my goodness, there's a lot. Um, so, uh, very briefly, and bearing in mind that I am skimming over and generalising some really complex topics. So Aspasia is the mistress of Pericles, an Athenian general, and the mother of his son, Pericles the Younger. She is represented in Athenian comedy as a prostitute, but in philosophy as a teacher. So this is the period of, of classical Athens. This is, if you think of a Greek play or a Greek philosopher, they either came from this period or just a few decades later. Um, <laughs> this is like, if you picture ancient Greece in your head, 
the classical period in Athens is what you're picturing. Um, it's quite possible she wasn't... She could have been a prostitute. It's quite possible she wasn't a prostitute and comedy is just making fun of her. What she wasn't was a respectable Athenian citizen woman. Woman, sorry. Respectable Athenian women could not be named in public unless they were dead. That could be a whole other episode by itself. Um, they, their tombstones name them and give loads of details about them, but they could not be named in public to the extent that we have um, speeches from court cases revolving around a woman's activity that do not name the woman. They just call her the wife. Um, Aspasia was not Athenian and therefore could be named. And in another irony, the laws that Pericles had pushed for some years earlier, making sure that anybody who had the right to vote in Athens was the legitimate child of an Athenian citizen and an Athenian citizen in inverted commas mother, because women couldn't technically vote or be citizens, but legitimately the child of two Athenians. He'd pushed for these laws, his legitimate sons then died, and his son with Aspasia couldn't inherit because of his own laws that he'd insisted everybody adopt. So there's some more irony. Um, I think she's very interesting in this context. Obviously, she's not married, which famously Mary Wollstonecraft wasn't to Gilbert Imlay and Mary Shelley wasn't until the death of Shelley's first wife, Harriet, um, which I thought was an interesting connection with those two. Um, and it, she's kind of a fascinating figure. She's hard to really know much about because all we are seeing are representations of her. And they're very different depending whether you're reading philosophy or comedy. But uh, still, very interesting and pretty much the only woman we really know much about from classical Athens. Sappho is earlier. She's an archaic Greek poet. Greek poet. So basically, a couple century or so earlier. Uh, from the island of Lesbos, she is the source of the words sapphic and lesbian because she wrote love poetry to young women. Uh, we don't have very much of it, just a few fragments, but it's very beautiful. And she was admired and revered as a great writer and a great poet, um, pretty much throughout classical <laughs> early modern periods. I normally refer to Boadicea as Boudicca, which is closer to her Celtic name, but for some reason she was known as Boadicea in the early modern and modern periods until about the 20th century. Uh, Queen of the Iceni, a tribe in uh, east of England wasn't England at the time, obviously, east of southern Britain. She led a major but ultimately unsuccessful revolt against the Romans um, as a result of a number of abuses, uh, including, according to at least one of the sources, the rape of her daughters. So there is an element of feminism to her story, assuming you follow that particular source, um, as well as this, this fight against tyranny. Classical authors, so she's written about by Tacitus in two separate texts and by Cassius Dio, and they give her a bunch of rhetoric about how terrible it is to live under slavery and depict her as a noble barbarian because they are referring to their life under the emperors Nero and later Domitian, who's the emperor when Tacitus is writing. Cassius Dio writes later. Um, they're referring to life under the emperors as slavery and they're comparing Nero unfavourably to Boudicca and saying basically this barbarian woman's better than you. It's an insult to Nero and Domitian. Um, it's very common in classical texts to compare living under tyranny to slavery. And it's another thing that to a modern ear sounds very strange because living as a 
freeborn citizen under a king from a modern perspective we would say that is not slavery don't call that slavery and we'd be right um but this is what classical rhetoric does it refers to living under any kind of dictator king whatever as slavery um and then i've also so she does in the original story she talks about slavery and liberty um there are some quotations in the story from anti-slavery poet William Cowper. Um, so there is a sort of a abolitionist undertone, although it doesn't directly address arguments around the abolition of, of slavery. Um, but she's she's comparing um, yeah, life under a tyrant to slavery. And I have also had her talk about women's positions as being like slavery. And again we in the 21st century would not necessarily make that comparison depending on the circumstances um but it is a comparison that yeah presumably it is the reason that, that Boudicca is appearing in this text I've also given her the French revolutionary motto of liberté égalité fraternité um just for the French revolution connection and because it sort of worked for the theme of her speech I have partially quoted some bits of the speech she gives in Cassius Dio's history as well as from the ethereal text um, just to quote those sections about being enslaved and things like that. And finally, Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen, who reigned from the 10th to 19th of July, 1553. Um, she was put on the throne by uh, Protestants who did not want uh, Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII, to become queen. So very, very briefly to sum up this bit of British history. Henry VIII breaks away from the Catholic Church, um, starts the Church of England, but he's not really interested in changing much from how the Catholics did things. He just takes all the money from the monasteries and doesn't do what the Pope says anymore. His son, Edward VI, is actually Protestant in, in theology and thinking. He's been raised by Protestant teachers. So Edward VI makes the Church of England into a Protestant church rather than just the Catholic Church without the Pope. Edward dies young and then the next heir to the throne is his older sister Mary who is Catholic and so you know, the nobles they don't want Mary to be queen um, <laughs> you're probably right she burned a lot of Protestants at the stake for refusing to go back to Catholicism uh, and it's po quite possibly the origin of the term Bloody Mary uh, but anyway they didn't want her to be queen so they try to get lady jane gray who is related to the king uh made queen uh doesn't work <laughs> mary deposes her and executes her um a few months later she was executed on the same day as her husband in 1554 on the 12th of february aged 16 or 17 so she's a protestant hero and martyr um in reality, she's a young girl who was used by men for political ambitions, mostly. But she was genuinely learned. She was well-educated, interested in philosophy. She was, you know, her theology, her spirituality was Protestant. Um, so all that much is true. And in this period, as I, I mentioned earlier, she's revered uh, as this kind of paragon of female learning and virtue. She also supposedly haunts quite a lot of areas local to where I live for some reason. Like Her ghost is everywhere. So I'm going to have to dig out one of those stories. But those are bits of modern ghost folklore. And she passed through the area once and apparently a spirit never left. 
the ending of my story probably seems a bit strange. Um, I've taken this maiden who attacks a man from the ethereal story, the original story that I was adapting. I didn't want to leave it out because it's such a cool, gory image. Uh, in the original story, the, the maid attacks one of the men the story's been talking about. It's a man called John Hughes. And Lucy notes that so many men were called John Hughes at this time that we actually have no idea which one she meant. Um... My young man that she attacks, or man of, you know, various identities that she attacks, he's not any one individual. I've got him shifting through visual elements that call to mind Percy Shelley, which is the unruly hair, William Godwin, Mary Shelley's father, Mary Wollstonecraft's husband, who's the older and stressed image, Gilbert Imlay, uh, the father of um, Wollstonecraft's first daughter, Fanny, who's the long nose, it's not that long, really, but I needed something. Uh, and Byron, who's wearing a turban. Uh, the original story then makes this reference to Xantippe. Xantippe is supposedly the wife of Socrates. And during this period, the early modern period, uh, the name was proverbial for a nagging, irritating woman, a scold. Um, that really didn't seem to fit the feminist tone. Again, it's something that 20, 21st century feminism would not kind of approach this idea that way would not have this kind of proverbial nag um, appear to rip out men's hearts it's very odd I can't really explain it other than maybe it represents women who make it harder for everyone else um, in the original text it comes before the favoured women who are going to marry two of the men but it's not clear which oh, it does say which two but I can't remember um, it comes before they are given gifts so anyway, it's a bit odd, uh, but it was such a good image. I had to include it, even though it's a bit strange. Uh, it's worth noting that the story opens with uh, a reference to spirits, which in their days of nature had animated female forms. The Greek word for soul, psuche, is actually feminine. So the Holy Spirit is in fact, in Greek, a feminine word. Now, whether that means anything, Greek and Latin also have the word for sailor be feminine. Um, but it is very, very interesting and something I would like to know more about, really. I haven't looked into it in much detail. There is a reference in there to Spartan women. I don't have time to go into ancient Sparta right now. Um, the idea that Spartan women dominated their men. I mean, the ancient texts don't really suggest they dominated. They certainly had more sway than Athenian women. They are named, for one thing. <laughs> you can name a Spartan woman like Gorgo, the queen. Um, which obviously helps. Uh, they did have a much bigger role in the education of children who were very small. Boys would be sent off um, to live as kind of mini soldiers at the age of about seven. Um, but they would have had a role in the education of young children. Um, a lot of our ideas about Spartan women come from a text by Plutarch, who is writing uh, 2nd century AD about Sparta as it supposedly was in the classical period, 700 years earlier. Um, and he has this text, Sayings of Spartan Women, which has things like, come back with your shield or on it, which means come back victorious or dead because you either won and you have your shield or you've been, your dead body's been taken on it. All of that comes from Plutarch. So yeah, real Spartan women is a very complicated topic. Um, but because the Spartans understood that female health would help produce healthy babies, they were allowed to exercise more than Athenian women. They could go out the house, unlike Athenian women. And as I say, they were allowed to be named. So they do appear to have had a 
slightly bigger role in their society. Another massive issue that I don't have time to go into in detail and don't have the expertise to go into in detail as well as slavery. Uh, ask me about Greek and Roman slavery, sure. Um, early modern slavery and the slave trade is not something I am an expert in. It's a very, very complicated issue. But there are these references to slavery in the story uh, from Boudicca. So Boudicca is talking about it in the classical metaphorical sense. But in this period, you know, the story is written in 1798 that word must have carried more meanings than that in 1798. And it would bring to mind what most people picture when you say slavery nowadays, which is um, the slave triangle and the enslavement of uh, African people being taken to the Caribbean or to the Deep South and all of that. Um, so it's an incredibly big issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> But just to briefly touch on it, um, Somerset's case, which was a legal case um, referring to uh, a person who had been enslaved called Somerset in 1772, implied that slavery would not be tolerated in the UK. It didn't outlaw it specifically, but it sort of set a precedent that on British soil people could not be kept as slaves. The Abolition Act of 1807 abolished the slave trade in the British Empire. So it abolished trading slaves. Only in the British Empire as well, although that did cover a lot of places. Um, it did not abolish slavery. That was abolished in the United Kingdom and the British Empire in 1833. So people could have kept slaves in the Caribbean or India or other places in the British Empire um, until 1833 but from 1807 they could not trade slaves. There were quite a few people living in Britain who had been enslaved but were no longer enslaved. Um, basically there were quite a few people of colour living particularly in London um, many of whom they or their parents had been enslaved at some point um, but at the point this text was written, it was considered, it was sort of thought of as illegal, and even if it wasn't officially illegal, um, to keep somebody as a slave if you were in the United Kingdom. Um, the abolition movement had sort of really sort of got going in the late 1700s. Um, and of course, the slave trade in the empire was abolished in between when the original story was actually written and when my story is set in 1812. It was abolished in 1807. So it's a really complex issue. I am you know, very much not an expert in this topic. Um, it is not something that I am confident talking about much beyond the absolute basic facts. Uh, ask me about Greek and Roman slavery and I will give you a two hour lecture. Uh, but um, <laughs> Yeah, slavery and racism in seventeenth and uh, oh, sorry, eighteenth and nineteenth century Britain and the British Empire is not my area of expertise, so I'm going to leave it at that. Um, but I do think the references that Boudicca makes to the idea of slavery in this text are not coincidental. It quotes from William Cowper, who's an anti-slavery poet. Um, so I, I think this text does have a sort of underlying abolitionist perspective although it's not actually talking about slavery or abolition. Uh, and then briefly, I mentioned Selkie's Lamia, Lamiae and 
Koineg. I do not know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, Selkies are from Scottish folklore. They are seals who shed their skin and take human form as women. Lamia in the singular, Lamiae in the plural, are Greek female monsters who ate children. And Koineg, Koineg's, Koineg, however you pronounce it, it's spelled C-A-O-I-N-E-A-G. If you want to Google it, um, is kind of a Scottish version of a banshee. So they're all female monsters. The Selkies are a bit less monstrous than the other two. But I was basically just having, um, you know, my, my fictional Shelley refer to female monsters that um, she and Isabella plausibly might have talked about. Um, just as a kind of, oh, maybe this is where this image of this monstrous maiden with fangs came from. So, uh, as I say, very much outside of my area of expertise here. I am you know, relying really on the work of other scholars for most of this stuff. So, um, the story, Ethereal, the original manuscript, uh, was published by Devaney Loser, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, 2016 in Tulsa Studies in Women's Literature, that's the journal, volume 35, number one, pages 59 to 91. Um, so if you have access to Tulsa Studies in Women's Literature, that's where you can read the original story, that's the only place, as far as I know, that it's been published, obviously let me know uh, if it's been published elsewhere since. The quotation from Sappho is from the translation by George Theodoridis at poetryandtranslation.com. Quotation from Cassius Dio is available at Lacus Curtius. It's the um, about 100-year-old Loeb edition, I believe. And there are quotations from William Cowper's The Progress of Error, 1782, and The Ode to Peace from the same year, which I've copied over from the original story. I had a look at two biographies um, when I was working on this. Miranda Seymour's biography, Mary Shelley, and Charlotte Gordon's Romantic Outlaws, The Extraordinary Lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley. Charlotte Gordon's is a great read. It does not have footnotes, which drove me up a wall. And I do not normally use anything that doesn't provide footnotes so I can see what primary sources they're using. It drove me nuts. Um, but it is, you know, I mean, Gordon is a very well-educated scholar. I'm sure what she's saying is accurate. <laughs> I just want the footnotes. Um, but it's very, very readable, very, very well written. And of course, it covered both women. Um, Miranda Seymour's Mary Shelley has a few more footnotes and it also has um, an image of the portrait of Isabella dressed as Lady Jane Grey, which I was really pleased to be able to see. Um, so yes, please do research all these topics um, beyond my vague attempts to introduce them and explain something that is massively outside my field of expertise. Um, there's also, by the way, an excellent episode of Doctor Who called The Haunting of Villa Diodati about um, Shelley and Polidori and Mary Shelley and Byron um, being haunted by a Cyberman. Uh, it's really, really good, although obviously not, in fact, accurate. Um, as far as I know, the Cybermen do not exist. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back with the Halloween episode. Um, I put out episodes every two months because unfortunately my workload simply won't allow any, uh, anything more often than that. Um, but I will of course be putting out an episode around Halloween. Um, so keep your eye out for that. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison with vocals by Olivia Knox. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. Mm -hmm.